Welcome, welcome back to Vikingology, the art and science of the Viking age. And today, oh boy, we've been excited about today, aren't we, CJ? Yeah. So uh, for history geeks the world over, Dan Carlin needs no introduction. He's one of the first, one of the best. He's been doing podcasting since 2005, right? Um, history, hardcore history, hardcore history addendum, also common sense, which isn't really history, but, oh. but uh, yeah. So, um, and you can find his podcasts on what? All streaming services? Basically. Pretty much anywhere you find podcasts, we should be there. Everything uh, on dancarlin.com also, and uh, Substack now, you're on Substack. That's right. That's yeah. right. And the goal today, just so everyone knows, is not to look like a fool next to two people who really know this subject, talking to somebody who really doesn't know it that well. So we'll see how it all goes. Don't embarrass me too badly. <laughs> the disclaimer right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. <laughs> I know what I'm doing here. Well, I would argue anyone who puts together a five-hour show on anything is going to have some kind of some kind of weight to bring to the table, right? I look at I your first joke, episode. I'm the color and, guy at the football game, right? My uh, job is to uh, the big hit happens, I go boom. You know, while you guys explain the the out routes and the play by play and stuff. You're the color guy, yeah, that's right, that's right. Well, I mean, I've been a listener for a long time, as you know, and I've used your podcast in my assignments, as you know. Um, and so I was happy to see that you finally got to Vikings. And um, I mean, I know you did Thor's Angels about what a decade ago or something. Yeah. Um, to lead into this uh, most recent one, Twilight of the Azir. But um, I mean, I think in in Viking terms, I'm convinced you had have been a scald. Uh, and, and I told you that uh, because I mean, it's a nod to your history and your journalism and your theater background. Um, I think you were born to do this work, and you know, you're just I mean, just that. Kind of phenomenal storyteller. So I'm so happy to be able to talk to you about this stuff. Um, but we'll talk about Vikings and also, yeah, maybe some other general stuff. I mean, we all have kind of interesting ways that we are interpreting Vikings, but also, um, you know, presenting it to the public, you know, either through podcasting or me through the classroom and you know, CJ through his historical fiction novels that he writes. And so I do want to talk a little bit about that too, just sort of, you know, history for public consumption, um, because I think it's interesting. And I think we're kind of living in a time where we're dangerously not paying attention to history. Um, and, and we should. Um, but first, before we get into that, CJ, we have to find out what kind of Viking Dan is, don't we? <laughs> is this like, so, what's your astrological sign? <laughs> oh no, but I do know when your birthday is, and it's the same day as King Charles the Third. By the way, it, it actually is. You're right. About that. <laughs> um, no, we have a little quiz. Um, so I'm going to ask you. Uh, let's see. I have six, seven things here, and it's a choice between two things, and so okay. I want you to choose. All right, mead or ale? Ale. Odin or Thor? Odin. Silver or iron? Iron. Silk or wool? Silk. Beef or skier? You should probably explain skier. It's like, it's like do you know what it is? No, but beef is, I'll go with beef anyway. Oh, well, it's kind of like yogurt. It's like cheese. Okay. So Still beef. <laughs> yeah. A sword or a rock? A sword. A poem or a saga? A saga. 
Oh, you're a, kind of a mixed Viking, but you're leaning toward fancy. You're leaning towards fancy Viking, not what's, ordinary. The, what's the other ordinary Viking? Oh, I'm certainly fancy. <laughs> <laughs> the beer drinking, Thor worshiping, uh, wool wearing, cheese eating, saga saga people. Those are the ordinary Vikings. Rock wielding. <laughs> yeah, the rock throwers. <laughs> the, you're, that's the lowbrow Viking, but you tend a little bit more toward maybe one of those Eastern Vikings with the. That's stuff. right. That's right. My family's come. I have Swedish and the, the Irish Norse. So there you go. There you go. All right. Well, um, so I mentioned you when Twilight of the Azir dropped when like January. So it's only earlier this year, right? Um, this five hours. Practically yesterday is what I keep telling the listeners when they ask. We just got it out, didn't we? Yeah. Well, yeah. And as we all know, by your standards, that's, that's normal. Like yesterday. Exactly. Um, but so January and it was a, I mean, five hour extravaganza and picked up where Thor's angels left off. And, um, but so I want to know just in prepping for that and what you're doing for part two, what is it you've learned about who the Vikings were? Well, what's always interesting to me is, you know, I, I always do subjects that I already had a, a foundation about. So once upon a time, I was into Vikings and I read up everything, you know, that a, a lay person back then could have gotten their hands on. And that's kind of how it is for most of the subjects we talk about. But what ends up happening, of course, is that there's a lot of new history done between whenever it was that I did that and now. So I spend my time trying to educate myself on you know, what's been discovered since and the newer materials and whatnot. So when I sat down trying to figure out this next show, part of what we were trying to figure out is, well, what's new? I mean, a lot of people have been into the Vikings for a very long time. If you only read stuff from the late 50s or late 60s, I have books from the late 50s and late 60s on my bookshelf, you know, Gwen Jones's stuff from the late 60s. I mean, what's different? And a lot of the places where I sometimes get into trouble is going from memory you know, I always say if I don't know something, I'm usually safe because I'll go look up the latest stuff. But when I, I do my work is improvisational. So sometimes stuff comes out that I'm not planning to talk about. And sometimes it's from 1968 with Gwen Jones and it's in my memory banks and that might not be current anymore. So a lot of what I do uh, when I get into these subjects is try to figure out what's changed since the last time I paid attention to it and uh, and some of the newer stuff. And then I try to sort of blend it into something that's unique because you know, like you were saying earlier, everybody's got a certain way to tell these stories. And what's your way? And so, you know, as we try to, you, you mentioned the storytelling side. Well, if you go to any of these traditional societies where they still have oral storytellers going around from place to place, uh, you know, Herodotus did it the same way. Part of what you're trying to do is keep people, you know, enraptured by the subject matter. And so part of what you have to do is try to figure out what the, you know, the strands in the story that might appeal to people today are and wrap that around the facts and the other things. So we spend a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, what's interesting and what would make somebody who maybe doesn't even care that much about history, what would make them enjoy it? The problem we have with Vikings, obviously, and I know you guys talk about this a lot, is they saturate popular culture today. And a lot of what people are really interested in is not really all that necessarily connected to the facts, right? A lot of it's connected to the lore or the um or the sagas or the uh the skaldic and and the poetry and and so trying to figure out how to just deal with the facts and not get wrapped up into some TV trope uh that was an, and I don't watch the TV stuff so I don't even know what the TV tropes are so those are the challenges for me so what have you learned about who the vikings are who are they you know i'm not sure 
I can answer that. I'm not sure that we even know. And I'm not sure there aren't. And again, I feel like I'm talking to people who can answer this question, though I can't. Uh, I'm not sure that they all fit under one umbrella. I mean, you know, for example, the Vikings who went east, how long are they in the east before they become quite a bit different from the ones in Ireland? Right. Or the ones in Denmark who are slowly but surely being integrated into a greater European culture there. In other words, they may have all started out as Vikings in the 700s. But at some point, I feel like you're starting to get people who may have been siblings in the 700s turning into second cousins, you know, by the nine or ten hundreds. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Although we and know. True. Is that right? Maybe, I, maybe I'm going to ask some questions here. Do you guys think that's right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can ask us some questions. <laughs> well, um, I mean, a little bit. I mean, although they're in the East way earlier. I mean, I, sure. You know, we, we know that, they, you know, prior to the Viking Age proper. So, um, but yeah, I mean, actually, it, yeah. And I've asked this of other guests too, you know, this idea that we study the Viking Age, but to my mind, there are Viking Ages. You know, there are different things overlapping just within that period of time that we've chosen to define them of these, you know, three centuries or so. Um, not all Vikings are doing the same things. Um, so um, yeah, there's there's just way more going on there. But I mean, this is the historian's craft, though, part of it, too. And maybe the unfortunate part is you have to put these little bookends on things in order to sort of, you know, get them into a manageable spot so that you can look at them relative to other, you know, periods and time and people and stuff. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we do that, but we also acknowledge that it's more fluid than that. You know, what came before bleeds into it, and what I was came just going to say, you have you have the, the dates getting earlier and earlier, and dates that I would have called Vendel Scandinavia a decade ago now don't look all that different from from early Viking times. I mean, I was re reading Neil Price's book, and one of them was talking about uh, some of the discoveries they've made of burials in in what's now the Baltics, and that predate the Viking Age, but that clearly belong there. So it'll be interesting to see in 10 or 20 years where all this stuff goes. I mean, are we going to slide into the 600s at some point? Um, yeah, I do. I think it's definitely it's sliding that the you know the bleeding into the Vendel for sure. Like 750 is that's the date that I use with my students for the beginning of the Viking Age. And you know, whereas before it, it has always typically been closer to the end of the eighth century. You know, the whole 793 and Lindisfarne and all of that. But you know, as as we mentioned even with Judith and I think CJ, we probably talked about it before, right? I mean, the, the whole no, no, I know we have the whole Anglo-centric view of the Vikings gives you seven, seven, nine, three and 10, six, six. Right. And, right. um, but there's just so much else going on. Um, and you know, as, as Price writes about in that book, I mean, the Vendels built up a pretty dang brilliant culture. It sounds like, I mean, it's still a militarized warrior culture, but there was definitely some wealth and some, some major hall culture and everything, uh, that was going on already at that time before the Viking age, it just gets to the point of, you know, all right, well then what the heck is going on in the eighth century, you know, where we just sort of seem to see this escalation in the expansion and the rating, uh, you know, that, that kind of defines it a, a little bit differently, but when you start hitting societies that write, it almost appears magically that all of a sudden they show up when maybe I was reading, it's maybe possible they were doing this to each other for quite a bit of time yep. before anybody else found out about it. Yeah, almost certainly, I would imagine. Um, well, and as as we continue to uncover new new evidence, it's becoming clear that the the characteristics that defined what we would call today Vikings, right, um, emerged in a time where 
you know, it's, it's really it's the, the scarcity of, of sources that, that impedes us from really understanding what's going on. So with to your point earlier, Dan, about, you know, uh, the academia or the, uh, you know, how, how we see these things changes over time based on all the new evidence coming out. And with archaeology making massive advancements in the last 30, 40 years, it's completely you know, retold the story. But then we seem to still be stuck in essentially the the memory of what we used to think were Vikings, right? Um, and so that's the Anglo-centric 793 to 1066, right? It's a, it's it. So the cult, the I think culture, popular culture has failed to keep up with the advances in in what we know and understand about about the the so-called I call it the so-called Viking Age. Now I put that little caveat in front of it because <laughs> yeah. you know it's not Douglas really to me, right? With the short haircuts and the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the or walking. That's right, the or walking. Yeah. <laughs> Well, but the, I mean, it's 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 the interpretive art thing again, though, right? And I, I mean, I think that you know, when you were just saying culture of Vikings, all of a sudden I'm thinking to myself, the cult of Vikings, because that's kind of what it's like a bit in some of this modern popular culture. I mean, people are really into it, and I'm always just sort of astounded by how much uh, and how popular they continue to be. But also with experiences that I've had over the years with my students of how much they want a certain Viking. And it is not going to matter how much, you know, modern scholarship is starting to change the view of them. Um, I mean, one of my most famous ones was, he wanted the blood eagle to have been real. <laughs> and when I have my students read an article that is from the 80s, <laughs> where it fairly gets debunked and, you know, put up to uh, mistranslations and misreadings of the poetry over time, right? So this like telephone game type of situation that she concludes that she doesn't even know if it ever really existed at all, or if it did, certainly not in maybe in the way that, you know, we think of it as this gruesome execution and torture and whatever. My students have to read that. And that student was like, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> Doesn't matter. I still want the Viking I want. And I think that, that that's always going to persist. So that's the barbarian thing, though. I mean, I remember studying, you know, when you look at the Romans, you know, it, it's funny if you juxtapose the idea. Uh, Tom Holland was talking about what, what I like to call the guy liner that the Anglo-Saxons started adopting from the Vikings on the other side of the Dane law. And then you go back hundreds of years previously and you watch the Romans uh, the old line, you know, ethical concern, uh, Romans smashing the the teenagers for dressing in the tight pants that the barbarians wore, because just like the girls liked the guy liner uh, uh, on the other side of the Dane law, the, the girls liked the tight pants that the Germans wore, that the Romans fought. I mean, there's a certain continuity to to there's something about barbarians that people are attracted to. And it doesn't always have to be like the Nordic ones. Right. Barbarians have a certain cachet and maybe they always have. Well, yeah, because I remember when you were on Lex's podcast and he asked you about that sort of like, you know, it, but he prefaced it with he thinks that people are just in general naturally attracted to warriors and this idea of what it means to be a warrior, you know, um, and I mean, I think that's probably true to a certain degree. I mean, people want to maybe think of themselves as strong or I don't know, whatever, but there does seem to be some kind of intrigue there. I think also there's a lack of complication. You know, it's it's very easy to just look at this and say, you know, this is a not very complicated thing. This is what these guys do. There's not much nuance. And, this, you know, I mean, it's, it's sort of like thinking about a pro football player and all they do is football. 
There's no life. There's nothing that they they don't do knitting or or, or poetry on the side, and they have no families. And this is what they and and so I think there's a simplistic thing there that barbarians and Vikings and those guys just run around Viking all the time, and that's what they do. Um, and that's why you know sometimes when you read the modern stuff, and you know there's such a there's such an alpha male component to all this. And I'm reading some of this stuff that's talking about, you know, homosexuality and female spirits that live within men and Odin may be sleeping with both sexes. And that completely sort of blows out of the water some of these stereotypes that maybe make this stereotype so appealing. And once you sort of broaden it out, they look much more like people, but in a way that's something less attractive about that than looking at them as sort of a warrior stereotype. Yeah, it's like, oh, take the one dimensional out and make it multidimensional. It loses some of its fun. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, you know, we, you and I were talking about this a little bit before with the idea of, you know, so the shield maiden, you know, and the powerful woman and how there's so many women now that are, you know, especially younger women, I have to say with my students who just, you know, so want that to be a thing and 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 completely overlooking the fact that, you know, the stuff that most women did in the Viking age, as far as, you know, domestic things and textile work and all of this, that they're like, oh, darn, you know, the second class, you know, just the domestic stuff, you know, that's a bummer. And I'm like, no, it's not a bummer. You have to understand those people on their own context. That community cannot thrive without that. And furthermore, those women made the sails that made the boats go where they could go. You know, I mean, I mean, all of it is just like, Stop looking at it like domestic stuff is a, a terrible thing and, you know, wanting, you know, Wonder Woman instead, because it's like they were Wonder Woman, but just in a different way that enabled their community to survive. What I always try to show, and I do this with a lot of different histories, is that you don't have to want it to be a certain way it wasn't, and you don't have to invent these things because the reality exists somewhere. I mean, there are women warriors. You can find them, for example, on the Eurasian steppe. Or you can find them. I like one is um, among the Apaches. Chief Victoria's uh, Victoria's sister was a warrior woman, um, uh, and and she's a perfect example. What was her name? Uh, Lotsen. And so she's. I mean, you can find these examples out there. So we don't have to invent them. Uh, and like you said, I mean, I was just reading um, uh, Sigurdsson's book where he's talking about how how many males either went away and never came back as part of the Viking age or came back so horribly maimed that all the things that they would have done back in their world, they couldn't do anymore, which meant that that had to be picked up by the women that they left behind. So at a certain point, their role in society is exalted. They're not a bunch of women walking three steps behind their men. They're running the society. It just may not be with sword and shield, but it may be running the farm, managing the slaves, and maybe even participating in the government at some level. Yeah, on some level, if they were, you know, kind of pretty wealthy, pretty high up there on the scale. But, um, but yeah, like in the that movie, the my big fat Greek wedding, where the mom's talking to her, she says, you know, the man may be the head of the household, but the woman's the neck, and we turn it wherever we want. <laughs> yeah, my mother always said to pretend that women aren't a part of history is to ignore exactly how women continue to run things in a lot of households now, no matter who's nominally supposed to be in charge, and, and always have. <laughs> yeah, back when I uh, taught secondary school, I used to start all of my classes on on history with a lesson called the cultural lens. And I just draw a big telescope uh, on the on the board, and then just say, so so essentially, you know, here's the end is how you how you view the world, and the beginning is kind of where you start with your vision, and then in there we add different colored lenses 
to represent all the different cultural factors that you're bringing to the table that are changing how you see the past or how you even see the world, right? And so it's like where you're born and what culture you're from, what language you speak, and then the people you surround yourself with, what socioeconomic class you're in, et cetera. And as you go down and then you take two different people with two different lenses and they'll see the world completely differently. And I think that's an important thing to, to stress when we talk about history is that we all bring something to the table and bias is inherent in all of us. And so we're all gonna see something a little bit differently. Uh, and so for us, as as people who share this information with other people, I think it's it's good to be aware of what we bring to the table and what our tendencies, you know. Um, I, I think it, my favorite example so far in this podcast was when we had Matthew Panessi on here. And he does, uh, what, 8th and ninth century? No, 7th and 8th century monasticism. 8th and ninth century, you were right. Right. He was, yeah. And he, but, and I but, mean, he's... His specialty was dead center in, in the Viking age. And so we're Frankish so, monasticism, even Frankish. Yeah. So yeah. like right, right in the thick of it. And he's like, I spent a whole career ignoring the Vikings. And we're both like, what? <laughs> How <laughs> not- is that possible? <laughs> and, and then he he gave us a perspective. He said, well, look, there were tens of thousands of monasteries operating all interconnected and doing all these different things. And the Vikings, you know, attacked what? Six of them? seven (laughs) it wasn't so it's it's suddenly i'm looking at it like whoa the vikings weren't that big of a deal and then i had to think about well why do i think the vikings were such a big deal well because i grew up in a place where we had this mythology you know i go back to my foundational narrative of you know how i even got interested in the subject in the first place and then and then suddenly once i start picking that apart i can see i can see where my bias is and kind of change course a little bit too right and reevaluate you know, where I'm at in terms of how I share this information with people. Well, and something yeah. you bring up is something we try to do in the podcast too. Uh, it, it's a, it's a Rashomon effect where you need to be able to look at things from all the different points of view. And no one knows what Rashomon means when I bring it up these days, you guys different, but I'll bring it up to like people listening to the podcast. And so what I always try to do is give an example people can relate to. And I always talk about, there was a Gilligan's Ep- Island episode once where um, it, they basically play with this same theme and it starts off with some sort of crime happening and they decide to hold a court and then each of the members of the cast testify what they saw. And so it's all from each cast member's viewpoint and they all saw the same event, but remembered it completely differently. And that's what we try to do also with the podcast and show how, you know, there's, there's, there's your version of the events. There's the other side's version of the events. And then there's all the bystander version of events. And that's what, you know, you brought up the Frankish thing. And that was one of the things that I, I think when we were, you asked earlier what we were noticing when we were doing the show that was different maybe than what we thought before. Being able to look at this from the different viewpoints, whether it's the way the people in the British Isles saw these Viking attacks, the people in Ireland saw them, or the people in uh, uh, Friesland saw them, or the Franks. And I mean, I, I think. I think that helps flesh it out. And I always describe it. I like your lens layer idea. We always describe it as kind of a mosaic. And each one of these uh, points of view is is a piece of the mosaic. And once you put them all together, you start to see a more complete picture. But each part of the mosaic has its particular vantage point. And if you ignore that, it's like having a piece of the mosaic missing. And so I think that that, that and I, I do think this is part of an all-encompassing history because I think when I look at the books that I have from the 50s and 60s on the Vikings, as you mentioned earlier, it's very Anglo-centric. And so you're really getting heavy emphasis on one of those mosaic pieces where there's a lot more now, especially the stuff on the Eastern Vikings, where you feel like you're getting a much more holistic three. 
360 degree and zoom out view of, of this phenomenon that stretched all the way to the new world as we know, and all the way to like Northern Iran at some stages of the game. So I think you get, a, I, th I think it's much more compelling too, when you really realize the scope here. So, yeah, I guess then they, I was going to ask you like the level of granularity on Twilight. I mean, why, why? I mean, why five hours versus three hours? Or I mean, and I'm assuming is part two going to be five hours? I mean, what what is it about their story that you're like d diving that deep? It's a lack of organization and intelligence on the host and creators. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, is that we try to switch it up. So there's no formula. And anytime I feel like we're slipping into a formula, we deliberately try to switch up the approach on the next program. And the one that preceded the viking show was a very sort of an amorphous jump around zoom in kind of thing at certain points and so i thought well maybe what we'll do because there is a timeline is we'll try to stick cl more closer to the timeline because normally we have what we call a spine in the show which is sort of a narrative theme that runs through it this one doesn't have that narrative theme because it really as you mentioned is a continuation of thor's angels which is a show we did about for lack of a better word, the multi-century bringing in of pagan Germanic barbarian culture into the organized hierarchy of the rest of the world. Well, that was a trend that was moving forever northwards. And if we had done Thor's Angels correctly, because we actually ended it at the Viking Age, it should have continued up into Scandinavia, and then it would have been a complete whole, which is why this is, it doesn't have a different theme. It has the same theme as Thor's Angels, and the Scandinavians are just sort of the last people to get this treatment. Yeah, this treatment. The treatment, <laughs> the civilization treatment. They're getting, as the Chinese used to call it, cooking the barbarians. They're getting cooked. <laughs> Well, it is interesting to think about, like CJ, what you were saying earlier about, like, well, why am I so intrigued by these people? Um, when I first started studying them and being a medievalist by training, you know, so studied broader medieval cultures and stuff, um, I was like, okay, the Vikings are a big deal. Let's look at look at them. And then I was like, every time I see certain things about them, I'd be like, yeah, well, that's just like that culture, or that's just like that culture. And I just thought, okay. Where's the real significance here? Because I just kept seeing things that were, you know, just kind of pan medieval or, you know, they're doing things that aren't any different than maybe the Japanese samurai or, you know, it, or even some of the goths that preceded them and stuff. And and then um, I think, Dan, I may have mentioned to you, like I was doing some kind of cross-cultural comparison between the Vikings and the Chinook. And so even Native American tribes, and it just kind of, um, you know, starts to beg the question for me of these various ages, you know, in human history, where is it just that they were all, you know, kind of overlapping in this sort of warrior slash barbarian age where everybody's pretty much making the same kinds of decisions with faced with the same sort of resources and goals and things like that? I mean, I don't what do you think about that? Well, I'm trying to make distinctions between because the word is so omnipresent, Vikings versus Scandinavians. Right. So uh, one of the things Neil Price said, and I mentioned this to you because I love the line where he was talking about, depending on your point of view, uh, you, you could look at this as the, you know, the age of the Viking warriors going out and, and committing piracy everywhere. But it could also be called the golden age of the pig farmer if you're just looking at it from sort of a domestic. Scandinavian context. And so I try to make this distinction because some of this is the piratical raiding that, as you mentioned, is sort of omnipresent in, in, in history. I mean, in a way, 
I try to look at it like the various wicked witches it or the witches in the Wizard of Oz, right? So the wicked witch of the East is a problem and the wicked witch of the North is a problem. But the good witch of the West and the good witch of the South, well, from the Roman Greek Mediterranean perspective, the North is always a problem and the East is always a problem. The West is okay and the South is where we are. And so I think that as the as the civilizations that were writing so much of this down move ever northward and ever eastward, they're running into these kinds of peoples and these kind of peoples were problematic for those peoples. And so I feel like, as you said, how do we make a distinction between the Vikings and the people in what's uh, in what's now the Netherlands that were doing a lot of the same thing a century or two beforehand? And if you continue to to go backwards in time, those trends move southwards again. I mean, this is this is the sort of activity that the Germanic tribes were doing in the you know in the migration period. I mean, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Maybe, and as you and I talked about when we were together. The funny thing is why it turned out to be Vikings that caught our attention. I mean, why wasn't it Visigoths or, you know, I mean, there's there's a million different peoples that it could just as easily have been. And that would have fit a lot of those same, you know, TV tropes. I mean, Kirk Douglas could have played a Visigoth with that same, you know, GQ hairstyle and that same fuzzy, furry armor he wore. And who would have known the difference? He may have even played a Visigoth or something like that now that I think about it. So I, I really feel like there's an interesting question to be asked with the why Viking thing. Um, and, and one of the things I think we played with in the show is maybe, just maybe, the fact that they spread their DNA so far and wide allows a lot of different people in a lot of different modern countries to claim some level of Viking blood in their veins. And so maybe that, I mean, they're, they're the ancestors. It's like Genghis Khan's children, right? I mean, we're, uh, we're all related to Genghis Khan. So it's so you can kind of sit there and play with that and go, well, you know, it's natural to be interested in one's ancestors. And if you can somehow claim that the Vikings fall into that category, but the Visigoths don't, maybe that explains why one is, is more interesting to us than the other. Yeah, well, I wonder too, the, the sort of the Western slash American centric view maybe of it as well. And we actually talked to Judith a little bit about this too, because we were talking about the kind of the genealogy craze, which she said is also very big in England. But I mean, it's big in the US. And, and my thought about that is just because unless you're Native American, everyone in the US is, you know, basically disconnected from where they came from. And as, as a young country, we're all sort of trying to figure out, well, where's the old world for me, you know? And and trying to feel, yeah, connected to something. And so um, I, I think you're right as far, and it, as we know, I mean, there is a, a well, a, it's the second Viking diaspora for all intents and purposes. You know, there was a lot of Scandinavian immigration to this country in the late 19th and early 20th century. And then you topple or couple that with, you know, 19th century nationalism and these countries, including the Nordic countries, having to create their own kind of national heritage and myths and stuff like that. And for whatever reason, well, but then, you know, as we talked about too, then it takes a turn in the twenties and thirties with Hitler uh, and, you know, probably not the best turn for why Vikings should still remain so popular. You wouldn't want to say, oh, they're very popular and more so than others because Hitler, you know, I mean, that's kind of a terrible thing to conclude. Um, but he did latch on and sort of perpetuate this Nordic myth about these people that, you know, a lot of people have, have latched on to even still. I think that's when when I look at the one of the biggest changes over my lifetime in the way history is viewed, I think a lot of it and, you know, it, it, it deals with some of the stuff you guys were talking about at the outset, some of the new 
uh, tools available to people like bioarchaeologists and all these people that can bring DNA into it and isotope stuff into it and figure out, you know, what somebody was eating during their formative years and where they may have lived. And I think all this stuff is reinforcing reinforcing stuff that we always knew. But because of a lot of that 19th century stuff, especially the racial stuff, we sort of downplayed. And that's that there really weren't these pure people who were cut off in a DNA sense from the rest of these other pure people. They were mixing from time immemorial. And what I always like to point out is if you have slaves, you're mixing already, right? And so it's like the idea that these Vikings weren't trading with their neighbors in the pre-Viking age. Well, that's silly. Of course they were. Um, It's the reason you can get disease spreading after first contact in the Americas deep into the interior when the people who first brought the disease over are nowhere near the deep interior yet, right? Because everybody's seeing, mixing, trading with everyone else. And so I think that to me is the big component that, you know, when you talk about how you undo I don't want to say false history, but maybe history that was because it's always a product of its time, isn't it? It's always being used for political purposes and other. And in the 19th century and the nationalism and 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 that weird late 1800s, early 1900s uh, racial thing. I think there's been a lot of trying to undo um, the, the misplaced points of view from that era. And a lot of it has to do with things like racial purity or the idea that people existed hermetically sealed in certain areas and and only started getting uh, connected with other peoples once they broke out. And that's why we study the Viking Age. Uh, But I would say that I think a lot of that stuff where you're talking about people looking for their ancestors, I think you even see it in places like Britain. I have have my two earliest history books that I ever owned as a kid still. And the first one was an American history book. And I tell this story a lot because I'm a person that really needs, you know, especially in a lot of history people are, you need to know the beginning of the story and I need to sort of have bookends. And one bookend is now. And then the other bookend is when everything started. And as an American, you open up your American history book. And at the beginning, we start off with guys in the 18th century with powdered wigs. And you know, that's not the beginning. So then my mom had a job in London. So we had to live in London for a while when I was real little. And I got my second history book, but it was a history book written for people in Britain. And when you open that history book to the first pages, it had cavemen. And very quickly, a couple of pages in, we have Vikings. And so that's so the idea that you are a mixed race, a fusion of a lot of different people is inherent in, in the British view of their their ethnic past also. And the Vikings are a big part of that. Yeah. So I think the Saxons, an earlier version of the same thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Judith did mention that a lot of people were were interested in in, in Britain or doing the, the DNA tests. And, Ireland too, same thing. Yeah, because she's like, yeah, because you go back far enough. When she say like sixteen thousand years or something, and she's like, the island was covered with ice, so we're all from somewhere else. <laughs> well, and I mean, well, look at Romans. They have Roman blood, and whoever the and, you know, yeah. and the Romans are a multi ethnic, a multicultural super state, and so there's going to be people from all over the world coming over on the Roman boats and settling and mixing their their genes on the British Isles. Yeah, well, we, and if we go far back enough there's genetic eve which they've traced through mitochondrial dna there is a single ancestor to all humans alive on earth today who lived about fifty-eight thousand years ago i'm going off of memory so i could be off by a little bit but yeah and there's a genetic adam too but he's from like 30 something thousand years ago somewhere in there so there's so if we go back far enough we all share the exact same same ancestors uh 
Well, it gets kind of fun, too. Like I did one of those tests and they traced one genetic mutation to the Marsh Arabs in like, you know, Babylonian times. And I'm sitting there going, Marsh Arabs, how the heck do I get? But I mean, it's funny when you start looking at at, at really long timelines. Uh, I, I don't remember any family history where they got into Marsh Arabs or anything in Mesopotamia. But it just goes to show you once the timeline's long enough, we can have some interesting DNA that's that's, you know, we're all out of Africa once upon a time. Right. Yeah, well, it also gets to the article of mine that I shared with you and, you know, building on what work other people have done as well, as far as this, you know, um, the polygyny and the bride price hypothesis about one of the factors that could have been a real crucial in getting the Viking Age started in the 8th century. And this is, you know, th this, this idea that because uh, Norse societies were polygynous, and you get, you know, the chieftains and, the, you know, basically the rich guys hogging all the women uh, and and then it's leaving younger, you know, men with less wealth out of, in the cold. They can't afford to pay the bride price and get, you know, a, a, a good marriage contract at home. So they go out and raid in order to try to get enough loot to have that. Um, but not all of them are going to be successful. And part of the raiding phenomenon is taking captive women from other places. Um, and, you know, and, and we know that many of those women would serve as sex slaves. So like you're saying, I mean, the mixing is going on, you know, all the way around, but certainly probably as a part of that phenomenon for sparking the Viking Age. Well, seeing your class members who are upset that there weren't women warriors, you could say, yeah, but one way or the other, women caused the Viking Age. Either they yeah. either they did it that way or they did it because, you know, some mom said, now go make something of yourself and get on some boat somewhere and bring something fun back. I mean, I, I, I can definitely see women. I'm going to blame the Viking Age now on women. <laughs> well, well it's one. It's one of many potential factors. One of the factors that I'm leaning into uh, more and more. Uh, I'm not going where you think I'm going with this, okay, Terry. But, okay. <laughs> uh, but one of the factors I'm leaning in more and more uh, with the start of the Viking Age or why they left home to raid is technology. Because the Vikings were special. Uh, so to your point, Dan, if you go far back enough, the Visigoths, the Germans, uh, even the Celts, I, I just finished a book on, on the ancient Celts and the Romans and, and Greeks of the classical world were really interested in the Celts. And what did they grab onto with Celtic culture? Feasting, raiding, you know, all the things that we would associate today with Vikings. Yeah. <laughs> right. And the Celts had it first, but the Celts didn't have one thing that the Vikings did. And that was the long ship. Right. And the analogy I like to make is the, the Vikings burst onto the world stage with this brand new piece of technology that was way ahead of everybody else. And how they did it was kind of by chance, right? They had these long, thin rowboats used to go between the fjords, right? We go all the way back to the Hertz Spring boat 5,000 years ago. Uh, somewhere in the eighth century, somebody figured out how to put down a keel that allowed them to put up yeah, a really? big ocean, you know, ocean-faring sail. So it's uh, the analogy I like to make is, imagine if tomorrow New Zealand invented warp drive. It's a tiny little country with nobody there. Nobody thinks about them, <laughs> right? They're they not, have sheep. I'm, I'm, they have sheep. <laughs> so they're not, they, so it's like on the world stage, you know, I mean, New, I, and I, I, uh, I love New Zealand. It's a beautiful country. I respect New Zealanders, but on the world stage, they're kind of a blip on the map. But then all of a sudden they have warp drive and they can go to Mars, right? Like it's, it's kind of that kind of technological leap that the Vikings just ended up with 
towards the end of the eighth century. And that's what made them special because now you have this warrior culture that feasts and fights and does all sorts of other things, just like all the other ones, but they can show up anywhere at any time and disappear just as fast. And that kind of reign of terror is really what made them special, I right? Agree. Compared to any other group, historically speaking. And the for this whole the the start of the so-called Viking Age, my favorite theory, and Terry, I believe this was your your friend Ben who proposed this, uh, who said it's just the idea that they had this technology, so they used it. And that was the whole reason, right? So it's basically it, when you have a gun, you shoot it. Well, they had these boats. They took them, right? But they also had combined that with their their own cultural biases, which is, you know, they, they had their own intents, right? But it's essentially, maybe they just left Scandinavia, not because of the women, not because of uh, all these other factors, although there's really good evidence to show that all these factors all played some kind of a role. But maybe it was just because somebody figured out how to put down a keel, and then they were like, where should we go? You know, I know this place called England, and they have a lot of silver. <laughs> <laughs> so here, but here would be my question. So this is what I wonder about, because we, we, we've we've done a lot of talk now about about the sort of the precursors and how a lot of this stuff was happening earlier. I absolutely think you don't get to a place like the North American uh, continent without those wonderful ships. But the Anglo-Saxons got to Britain and, and proto-Viking that with whatever ships they have. The Goths got to Byzantium and committed piracy with their ships. Um, I, I guess I guess what I'm trying to figure out is where did other than the New World, obviously, where did the Vikings go with ships where their precursors didn't go with ships? The manufacture uh, of them, the way they were made, for one thing, with the clinker belt style, rather than just the, the strakes sort of being on top of each other with ribbing connecting them. So the clinker belt style, um, the the drafts of them, uh, the way they used mostly um, you know green oak so that they could shape them better. Um, they, they were just able to make ships that could, um, well, I mean, the, the sail is a big part of it because that's ocean going stuff that's farther um, than people were going. I mean, and, and Price says it in that book too, in, in Children of Ash and Elm. I mean, they went farther than any of their contemporaries agreed, agreed. because of this. Um, and all, but, but the Riverine Highways, that was a big deal part of it too, that they are able to get up rivers uh, and into places that other people were not able to do. And then of course, what they did largely in a lot of this was in the east but in other places too is that they began to control those highways as well you know then they're they're, they're charging people passage fees to get through and and stuff like that and and they were brilliant at like portaging around rapids and i mean so they just knew how to work waterways and you know the nature of scandinavia it's way, you know way easier to get around on the water than it is over land um you know particularly in places like norway um, I mean, they even get around better in the winter than in the summer uh, over land because they can ski and skate and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, taking to the water, they just they just did it better than everybody else. But, yeah, but was, and look, I don't mean to be contrary, but isn't that how it always was in the pre-modern world? I mean, shipping was always faster uh, until railroads were invented. Um I'm thinking about Caesar writing the Vene writing about the Veneti and their ships with their sh sails and having to deal with them or or the fact that the Romans had defenses on the Saxon shore, as they called them, along the entire east coast of Britain to deal with the piracy that came from uh, Jutland at the time. I mean, I feel like there's a continuity there where if the ships are explaining it, why did they have the same problem before they had the ships? 
Uh, like I said, I don't think you get to the new world without those fantastic ships. But I think I think maybe what you mentioned earlier is is one of the main reasons. It's the silver and it's the slaves. It's the economic draw that makes them, you know, to, to the old American line of go west, young man, which I think may have a Scandinavian sort of feel to it as well. I think it's the lure. And then you find the way to get to where you want to go because the silver's there or the slaves are there. Um, but I mean, I feel like the piracy, the shipping, uh, even the river traffic type stuff. I mean, all that stuff is attested to before that era. I wish it was as easy as just blaming the ships, but I think there's something else with these Vikings that fascinates us. Um, and I can't figure out what it is. Like like you and I had talked about, Terry, where we're trying to figure out why of all the things, because you mentioned New Zealand, it's a great apt comparison. I mean, this is Scandinavia. This is the edge of the world. These are small populations. How does that of all things, grab us and hold us. I mean, even if it was a trend that was temporary and, you know, you went through in the 1960s, we got hot for Vikings, but this is a long lasting, um, you know, multi-decade, maybe multi-century enduring fascination. And I'm fascinated as to why we're so fascinated. I, I think that's one of the great issues here. Yeah. Well, part of it's yeah. just good marketing, right? Yeah. Uh, and we can actually see that uh, through, so there's a French historian named Lucien Musset, who basically postulated three phases of Viking expansion. The first phase is characterized by what he called sporadic raids. Now, I would argue they were not sporadic. They were quite intelligently placed. Uh, but the sporadic raids is essentially the first 30 to 40 years of the so-called Viking Age, right, uh, where they show up uh, with lightning speed. The Two Lies of Charlemagne has one of the best examples of that. Uh, where Charlemagne goes to southern France. We don't know if this really happened or not, but it does communicate an awareness of this phenomenon starting to happen toward the end of Charlemagne's reign, where he goes to southern France, Vikings show up, and they're going to attack a village. They find out that Charlemagne's there with his army, so they turn tail and run. And when Charlemagne sends his ships, which were the most advanced ships out there, uh, as so they thought, to chase them down, Vikings were gone. No one could keep up with the speed, right? Um, so, uh, uh, that first phase, they would just show, they, going back to, they could show up anywhere at any time. And that is a psychological, uh, a psychological type of warfare that no other, in my mind, no other barbarian people or so-called barbarian people, uh, had, right. There had, you know, if you go back to, let's say the Anglo-Saxons moving into England, that was a big population movement and it took a long time, right. That we're talking centuries versus the Vikings showed up a decade, right. And then they could just show up anywhere, anytime. And they did. I mean, the first, in the first, so if you think of Lindisfarne, 793 AD, right. And that's Norway to Lindisfarne. Okay. Makes sense. It's just right across, right across Right or the Orkneys, right? Wherever they right. came. Or the Orkneys. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But then, then by 799, six years later, they show up in southwestern France. That's really far. And we don't think they got there through, you know, because they started showing up in Ireland immediately after, and then southern France. So right from the get-go, they reach, they, their reach crossed the known world like within just a couple of years rather than centuries, right? So so this was not a slow progression. This was a very quick outreach from the Vikings. And so the psychological the psychological effect of that was that the populations of Western Europe, I'm only speaking for Western Europe because they it, it was a very different nature in the in the East. We could talk about that later. 
But as far as the West is concerned, this is why I think of it as good marketing, because then the second phase of Viking expansion is known as the Dane Guild. They had people so terrified of them, they could show up with one ship and they could demand 5,000 pounds of silver and ransom and people would pay it, right? Because they show up with one. So that's, and I think that when we go back to the historical sources, like I could pull out the annals of St. Burton and uh, in the ninth century, almost every year mentions the Vikings somewhere, right? And when we think about going back to Matthew Panessi, who's like, there's tens of thousands of monasteries and there's maybe one or two getting sacked a year, right? So for, uh, in, in terms of sheer you know, volume of numbers, very small impact, but the psychological effect of it was such that it, it changed the perspective of the chroniclers of the time. So our contemporary sources are weighted very heavily toward talking about what the Vikings did because there was an awareness of what these people were up to. And so that's good marketing because you show up with a dragon head ship, people would see that and they'd flee, right? And so you start there. And then by the time you get to the 19th century historians looking in, right? As far as they can tell, wow, the Vikings like conquered everything, right? So it kind of skews our modern perception too, because of, you know, you know, because of what we see, right? The number of the volume of mentions of the Vikings versus other things, for example, right? So there's, so it's just, it's really like they, it's almost like we inherited the trauma, <laughs> right, of the Viking Age, and then and then it popped into popular culture because then that's that was a very effective tool in the 19th century when you had all these nascent democracies, right? Think France, uh, France is the big one, and all the other ones uh, trying to create these these national narratives to 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 cobble together national sentiment, national pride, nationalism essentially, which then you know did a good number on us in the 20th century, but they were trying to, you know, and the Viking was this great plot device, the other, right. That came and attacked us and we repelled them and, you know, gave us, you know, it gives us legitimacy. So it's, you know, um, and I think that stuck with us today, right. Where we, we do still see them as other as outside. Right. Um, and I think to, you know, today we have a tendency to gravitate towards those things as well in popular culture. Now I'm just rambling, but that's, <laughs> I think you brought up, I think you brought up something really interesting, which, which, and maybe it's another, you know, and I do agree with you that the cause of the Viking age is a multi, you know, I always describe it like strands of a rope. There's a lot of things going on. It's not, we love these single cause uh, uh, sorts of approaches, but it's a bunch of things. And, and, and one of the ones that's always been a part of the equation, but I think you, you nailed it when you were talking earlier is the vulnerability factor, right? You, you mentioned Anglo-Saxons taking a long time to settle Britain. Well, why did it take so long? Because there were heavy defenses for a long time, right? That there's Roman accounts of dealing with Saxon raiders, uh, in what's now France, for example, and their policy, um, I was trying to remember the book. It was a, it was a book on Saxons that I was reading for the Viking show, but they were talking about cornering uh, the Saxons with a local defense force and then negotiating a deal, which sounded very much like some of the deals that you were mentioning that the Vikings always agreed to, right? Give us the Danegeld and we'll leave. And the Romans agreed to the deal, but while they were negotiating with them, they set troops into a forest that was between where they were negotiating the deal and the ships the Saxons had to go back to. And while the Saxons were on their way back to the ships after getting the money, they, the Romans attacked them and massacred every one of them. And and so and and that was their way. And the guy was saying, now, this might sound underhanded, but when you get a chance to get these people, you get them. And and I think that's one of the things that 
all the time I was growing up, they always cited as a, as a reason for the Viking raids, the vulnerability, right? In other words, places that you could not have hit and gotten away scot-free once upon a time, all of a sudden, you know, we all know that that's the era of decentralization uh, in, in, you know, Terry, with your, your medieval knowledge, you know this. I mean, it's, it's an era where eventually when I was a kid, they used to say that feudalism grew out of this as a way to try to decentralize the defense forces to deal with a decentralized attacking force. Force, right. So I think some of this is maybe, the, you know, we talked about the silver and the slaves being such a economic attraction, but you also have to couple that with the equivalent of the of the safes being unlocked in that era and easy pickings. Right. So if you attack uh, Britain when the Romans are there, they've got ring cameras everywhere. Right. And <laughs> and security, you know, on the quick speed dial uh, during the next era, they don't. And so, I mean, it's, it's like encouraging someone to come and take your stuff. Yeah, well, we see that for sure over the development of the Viking Age as they start state building and everything, you know, I mean, it, and then, of course, Christianity coming in doesn't hurt, but I mean, it, the Carolingians it, falling apart, right? Right, exactly. I mean, they exploit because it's not only weakness as far as like isolated monasteries that have blingy stuff that's easy to just take. I mean, it's also exploiting political weakness, too. And, and you know, people who know medieval history know that, you know, Charlemagne's children and grandchildren weren't the most competent leaders. Um, With names and, like the fat, the bald, the simple, the yeah. great nicknames, aren't they? <laughs> well, you know, they hadn't figured out the surname thing yet. <laughs> um but I mean, for my money, it's the money. I'm, I mean, I just think it's the money. I, you know, and I'm definitely not mo monocausal. I, I'm, I'm a historian for long enough to know that nothing is that, uh, literally nothing. But for, for me, um, you know, again, like that piece that I shared with you, I mean, the, the combination between the desire for wealth, but not the wealth in and of itself, but what wealth conveys, and that is power and status, uh, which means a lot, right? And, you know, we see that too, and over the course of the Viking ages, more and more men are consolidating power and wanting that they actually start clamping down on the Viking stuff, right? Because that's just, it's, it's too rogue, it's too destabilizing, whatever. But I also think then what's important is a cultural ethos that underlays um, the Scandinavian uh, culture at the time. And, um, you know, it, it, I mean, even going back to the women, I mean, if you're going to have a culture that actually condones, you know, the, the best and fittest of you to leave for weeks or months a year, I mean, that's not just guys just like, yeah, see ya, ha have fun, you know, hope you're still here when I get back. It's like the whole community and the whole culture has to support that endeavor as worthy of doing. And hopefully it pays off. Right. Because, every you know, they're going to bring back wealth or whatever, and it's going to help everybody else out. And so that and then coupled with just what we know about militarized warrior cultures being fairly honor coded. Um, but it was really I was listening to recently um, an interesting interview with a guy who was a longtime war correspondent and spent a lot of time like deeply embedded and saw some really nasty stuff in, you know, like Afghanistan. And I think even maybe uh, like uh, in, in Sarajevo before that and stuff. Um, but the whole premise was, you know, this question of why do men seek danger? And, and I was interested in this actually with you, Dan, just because I know of your, your background of being interested in like military and, and warfare type of history. And just this idea that nowadays, like for some men, and there's been a few books have written about it, you know, that the men are kind of in this crisis mode right now because of lack of 
purpose for a better way to put it, you know, that there's no sort of outlets for uh, expressing courage or valor or, you know, so some of these things that actually make me think of the Viking age and the culture that existed at the time, that it was a worthwhile thing to do, to go out and endanger one's life in hopes of, you know, accomplishing a great deed or bringing back a bunch of wealth. And people applauded you for it. And it amounted to what Vikings appeared to really like almost above all. And that was to have a reputation that was worthy of being remembered for. And, and CJ writes about this, his character in his book is, is in search of that. And, and so, you know, in, in having all of that, it's, it's like we've lost some of that in the modern era. And it, it's causing, you know, sort of, again, kind of a crisis for, for men. And um, I, I just think that that is, is such an important part of it. Another interesting part has to do with like facing violence with a sense of courage and living through it. And one of the things that this guy was arguing was about PTSD now and saying, you know, these soldiers that come back and then say that they face, you know, just like this lifelong struggle because of the trauma that they experienced, you know, in, in warfare. And he's like, you know, it's just not you know, not to minimize what they're going through, but it's not plausible in the long term to say that they're experiencing that because of the what they experienced in warfare. It's more about what they experience when they come back. And it's the lack of avenues for expressing this kind of valor and purpose and meaning and having the brotherhood of the men that they're with in warfare and all of that. Uh, that they miss. Um, and, and so th they suffer because of that. But he goes back to saying, look, for almost almost of human history, and again, my mind goes to Viking Age, and it seems so appropriate, is, is that people were faced with trauma and violence relative to now, definitely more so, but that the human species is hardwired for survival. And so we actually are more hardwired to get over trauma, you know, sooner rather than later, because our survival depends on it, right? And so to say that you're suffering this kind of trauma for a long, long, long time, um, he's thinking it's more, you know, it's not trauma related to violence in warfare, it's trauma related to the lack of it almost when they come back, because we don't live in the age like the Viking age where everything is uh, about, you know, particularly men having these um, avenues for, for meaning and purpose and, um, doing something challenging and something important that will uh, get them remembered and, and all of that. So I don't know. What do you think about that idea? Well, there were two things that came to mind. One was uh, the prevalence of of some of these people. You know, you can think of like war chiefs in some tribal societies, for example. Like uh, I remember uh, in reading about the Apaches, there was always a lot of status given to these leaders who could promise successful raids and who had developed reputations over time for, hey, join my raids because we come back reliably with stuff and we bring our guys back with us. And then something Neil Price had written about where he talked about how a successful raid uh, on the part of a of a Viking youth could literally change your life, right? You could you you could come home a made man, right? If this is the mafia kind of of an idea, and and how you know, and you can see some uh, some tribal peoples with the same sort of thing where the the warriors couldn't stand the idea of working with a plow or a hoe every day for their lives when they could just go, you know, on one of these raids, have some excitement, gain some status. 
and come back with tons of riches. It would have taken you years of, of work with the plow to, to make it. I think there's a perennial attraction to that. And there was a, a, a moment, I think, in our Viking show, sometimes tough to remember what we said months ago, over five hours at a mm -hmm. time, but where we almost com compared it to like a young uh, uh, rap slash, you know, gangster culture where some of the same stuff mattered, right? Your ability to show off uh, 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 the stuff that you, you, you had the rings on your fingers, the, the, uh, conspicuous displays of wealth to, uh, it was a status thing. And then there was the honor thing that if you're disrespected, somebody's going to pay. I mean, you know, you could read a lot of this stuff and go, Hmm, the Vikings might've been like versions of these and not just the Vikings, but as you sort of, sort of stretch it out over the long narrative, this is hardly confined to the Vikings or these war chiefs or the gangster rappers. I mean, there's a there's a male, especially I would say a young male component to this where all this stuff is attractive. Easy scores, conspicuous wealth, making something of yourself at a young age and doing so in a way, you know, we'd call it the 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 short route to these or the easy route to these as opposed to slow and steady wins of the race. I go on three or four raids and I never have to work again. Right. Or, or then I'm the guy who owns the ships and I send the other guys out to go do it. I just take a cut. I mean, I think I think there's a lot of that in there, because especially when you say to somebody, why would you go on this? Well, it's adventurous, right? Well, who's looking for adventure? I can tell you as a 50 something year old male, I'm not looking for adventure anymore, right? I, I'm I'd like, it sounds hard on my back, right? It sounds like a lot of work. I'm going to be cold and hungry. And I, but when you're in your twenties and you're bored and somebody's saying, you know, why don't you go? Uh, I was washing dishes at one point in my life. Who wants to go wash dishes? If somebody says, Hey man, you know, take you on this adventure. You'll have fun. You'll be out camping. You'll be with your buddies. There'll be some excitement. And when you come home, you'll make more than you could have made in 10 years washing dishes. I think I'm on that trip, you know? Yeah. I, I, it's very interesting that you say that because that article that I wrote, the entire genesis for that article was what I was seeing in the news every night here in Portland about what's going on in the, uh, somewhat in the African-American community, but others as well with young males increasing in violence. And I started looking at these things sort of anthropologically, cross-culturally, because exactly what you just said, that sounded to me like, well, that's that's a Viking raid right there. I mean, it's 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 the guys who've already made it, who've got the status and the, the, the women and the cars and the whole thing. And then the younger guys who haven't come up yet, but they covet that stuff. And so they're willing to do things, even commit criminal acts in order to do that, to achieve some level of status and prestige. And it's like, well, damn, I know exactly, you know, from all of our research that that is what those men were doing in the Viking age. And it's a win-win situation in the Viking age, right? Because you either come back and you're lauded and you're rich and all of that, or you don't and you died the best death and you get to go to Valhalla, you know, and continue your warrior buddy cohort fun drinking and eating forever training for Ragnarok, you know, like in the afterlife, it's just an extension of this life into that one. But then people remember you and talk about you and how brave you were because you died off on raid. And so in a Viking sense, it's it's everything. But again, yet we still see it now, this kind of, I guess, male um, thing playing out in cultures all over the place. So I, I like up, what you uh, just brought up. Oh, sorry, go ahead, please. I just, I just brought up a, a quote here from uh, Stephen Ashby, who wrote a paper in 2015 about this exact subject. 
Yeah. Uh, and it's in one of my blogs that I put in here, but he wrote in the flexible hierarchies of the Viking age, those who took advantage of opportunities to enhance their social capital stood yeah. to gain significantly social capital, basically being the fancy way of saying reputation. The lure of the raid was thus more than booty. It was about winning and preserving power through the enchantment of travel and the doing of deeds. This <laughs> provides an important correction to models that focus on the need for portable wealth. The act of acquiring silver was as important as the silver itself. I love that line because it's like, it's, yeah, we can make silver, but actually, well, and I think we try to do that today, right? Where it's like, um, think of, I, <laughs> I, I've been on this kind of binge of watching like uh, uh, social media videos about, you know, the the white men blogging. It's it's kind of a or white men podcasts about, you know, so the business guys who go out there and go, you need to wake up in the morning and do this and blah, blah, blah. And you get rich this way. And, and it's all just a kind of a headache to listen to. But then now they're kind of getting eaten alive on on these joke channels. Right. They're making fun of them. But it's it's kind of funny because that's essentially the phenomenon that we're seeing today. You know, you think of somebody like uh, Grant Cardone, right? Like, yeah, he has a lot of money, but what's more important to him? What to have the fame, right? It's it's more important for him to for to have people think he makes a lot of money than to actually make a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. It's a it's a similar phenomenon, right? It's that social capital that that for some people, certain a certain segment of the population, arguably back in the Viking Age and Viking Age culture, may have may have been even more important than than it is to us today. Yeah, the money is just a means to an end. Well, and you mentioned the Valhalla thing. And, and I think in the podcast that we did on the Vikings, we referred to that as the super soldier serum. So if you remember how Captain America's origin story went, they had this serum that, serum that turned him into a super soldier. But there's something about the carrots and sticks in that culture. And Valhalla is a perfect example of it, which created a soldier that if you want to contrast them with like the Anglo-Saxons, the Christian Anglo-Saxons anyway, you can see what an advantage it would be. And I always like to tell the story because the Vikings are hardly the only people that this applies to. I mean, you think about the uh, early years of the Islamic conquest, there's a similar vibe. But was the famous story, whether or not it's true, I always have to throw in the little asterisk, of how the leader of the assassin's cult, right, uh, the ones that the Mongols eventually wiped out in the Middle East, how he was supposed to create his own version of the super soldiers. And it's one of my favorite stories. And the the the, the story is that he would take these young people and get a whole bunch of young people together. And then he would choose a couple of them and drug them with hashish, which is where the hashish part of the whole assassin myth comes in, drug them with hashish and then steal them away in the night to what sounds almost like a Hollywood movie set that he created of paradise with rivers flowing with precious jewels with young girls that would have been exactly what these young, you know, teenage boys would have thought paradise consisted of and let them live in this place for a couple of days and then drug them again, take them back to the real world where they could tell all the other guys, Hey, I just visited paradise and this is what it was like. So that when they would be sent on these assassination missions, the whole thing would be, Hey, if you get caught, you get to just go back to where you were. So they were highly motivated to reach paradise. Well, when you, when you create a system where the carrots and sticks incentivize you 
to fight as well as you can because the gods are watching and you want to be at the chief table in Valhalla, we'll compare that to a bunch of Anglo-Saxons that are wondering whether they're going to heaven or hell. And the carrots and sticks are based on how good of a person you were. And you're not quite sure how good of a person you were because you don't know how the curve is being graded. And so you're, you're much more concerned maybe about dying because there's a lot of uncertainty where the other guy knows that if I just fight really well, that's the criteria. So, I mean, I think that that's the creation. And I think I told you, Terry, that when I visited Burka, normally when you go, as you guys probably know, when you go to these tourist places and they have a tourist gift shop place, they're practically selling you children's books. But at Burka, they've got these really heavy duty. At Ju at Judith Yench is one of the people in, in, in the, one of the books. But it was one of the chapters is the creation of a warrior uh, mystique, mythos, uh, uh, a brotherhood kind of thing based on this exact question, like a society that creates these special warriors because everything is geared toward incentivizing them to behave that way. And I think that's what you mentioned earlier, that there's there's a you know, it's not just the women encouraging the men. It's not just the lure of the silver. It's not just wanting the adventure. It's the fact that the whole society sort of undergirds and supports this cultural thing that allows for these people to not just want to go and do these things, but even incentivizes them that if they don't come back, even that's a positive, right? If you die and you did well, I mean, you're still going to be happy. Yeah, you know what that is right there. You'll know because you're a win-win situation. You're, yeah, well, you're an ancient world guy too. That's a Spartan with your shield or on it kind of thing. Yeah, but I but I think, see, that's different because I think the Spartan thing was a worry of disgrace, right? So that's that's a, that's a negative yeah. reinforcement where this thing is more, it's a push and pull, right? You, yeah. you can't be disgraced, but at the same time, if the worst happens, it's really the best happening, right? Right, exactly. Well, and then you mentioned burqa. I mean, I, I think, and with this warrior thing, I mean, it, you know, and the female warrior, quote unquote, that may be buried there and all of that, uh, and, and everything that blew up uh, because of that about five years ago. But I mean, one of the things that one of the lead authors did come out and say that is, you know, a, a, a conundrum is that we actually don't know explicitly how the Vikings or the Norse themselves defined what a warrior was. Mm, and so, um, you know, so in, in, in jumping to sort of determining whether this grave, you know, has a woman warrior in that, it's like, well, what does that even mean? You know, a warrior by our standards, a warrior by theirs. We don't know what theirs were. So. And is an armed woman a warrior necessarily? That's a little like saying if you find a woman who had a gun in her house today for self-protection, is she a warrior or is she right. just a person who has to have a sword every now and then just in case? Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, we don't really go ahead. Uh, we don't really know what they believed either. This idea that they were superior warriors really comes from from the testimony of their victims, not not all of whom were, you know, they, they had their own biases and they had their reasons for either demonizing or valorizing, you know, uh, the, the Vikings. Uh, so I think this idea that they were, and it, and if we look at the Chronicles and we see what the Vikings were doing, you know, hit and run isn't exactly the most glorious, honorable way to fight. Right. Um, and, and we know early on, they, they could not stand toe to toe with the established armies of the continent, at least. Uh, and I would argue even, even with the Dane law, they had some success with the Dane law, but eventually the Anglo-Saxons overcame them. So this this warrior ethos that made them, you know, we we don't know what they actually believed. And when we look at what actually happened, they they that was probably their greatest failure 
uh, in my mind, is the failure to be able to to enduringly conquer and colonize. I'd say the only success story there would be Normandy because because they didn't try to invade. They were invited. They were given a land grant. And in France, that's what they resorted to doing because they just couldn't fight off a, a, a legitimate Frankish army or even a Breton army. You know, and the, the little well, this, look at the continuity. I mean, that's just what the Romans used to do, too. I mean, how did the Franks even end up with that territory to begin with? Because the Romans made them, you know, Fiaterati, right, where they mm -hmm. they basically gave them the territory and said, now you defend it from other people just like you. And then the Frankish state gives it to the Vikings of Rollo and says, now you defend this against other people like you. And that's also part of the decentralization we talked about earlier. Right. If you don't have armies that can get quickly to the scene where pirates are attacked. Well, give it to somebody else and say, you're the local Duke here and your job is to defend this, but you owe your allegiance to me. Right. So, I mean, I think I like to see these long continuity sorts of things. And I think that that's just, you know, the more things change, the more they are the same. And I also think you make a great point about who was it that these Vikings were fighting and the fact that they could do these hit and run attacks usually meant they're fighting locally raised forces of people, you know, the third, for example, right? These are not people that are warriors or who form the upper crust of the warrior part of those societies. It's generally the townsfolk who maybe have some old retired guys who used to fight mixed with some of the local population. And when you have to fight, you know, the equivalent of Frankish proto-knights from the continent, or you have to fight the Anglo-Danish house Carls later or whatever, uh, things are a lot more equal footing. And you're not exactly practicing a whole lot of really complicated tactics. You're not using much in the way of cavalry. You're fighting very similar sorts of styles to your opponents. I mean, I think you make a great point that the reason the Vikings are really nasty is maybe that ferocity maybe is the only thing they're bringing to the table that's different from their, you know, their well-armed, well-armored contemporaries, right? Well, at least or in the embellished. earlier period, it's... It, it, it or was, it was embellished. Great point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and then early on, I mean, we know, too, um, like CJ was saying before, even with, the, I mean, the, the surprise nature of it, I mean, we do know that they, you know, the, the stealthy kind of hit and run thing, it did work for them for a while. And, and the fact that people did, couldn't anticipate it. And because my students always be like, well, why didn't anybody protect the monasteries, you know, or why didn't, why didn't they have defenses there? And it's like, well, you got to understand the nature of just warfare and defenses in these medieval states that aren't really states like the way we think of it now. You know, they don't have the Department of Defense that's kind of there with, you know, garrisons every 10 feet for the entire coastline. You know, it's just it's just not possible to do. And I just think that the way that the Vikings could be quick and the element of surprise, just it worked for them in the beginning but like you mentioned you didn't say it by name dan but you, you know the, the the baltic you know the the stuff you know earlier on in the viking age or predating the viking age the the, the salme uh, boat burial right. i mean that's got what like 30 warriors in it pretty highly decorated as far as we can tell you know all swords all shields all of a certain laid out specifically age, certain yeah way, laid yeah. out very ceremonially and all of that but clearly something went wrong <laughs> in that particular engagement and it's not the only one and so we know that they weren't um, you know, the most formidable always. Um, but that is actually something that I was going to ask you. And again, because of your background in military history, I mean, you know about a lot, especially the ancient world and stuff. I mean, how do you, how do they stack up? I mean, they're not really that special as far as the history of warfare goes and what they did. 
No, and you know, it's interesting. We talked about this in the in the Viking show that we did, that that if you look at the changes in the nature of the raids from the 700s to the 800s to the 900s, I think you can plainly connect the fact that they the, the early raids are taking advantage of surprise and you don't need a lot of ships to make a real killing, if you pardon the, the expression, <laughs> but that when the pirate raids are more expected and the defenses are better prepared the 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 vikings have to bring more ships and more people because there's they're ready for them right um that's so you bring up how how they would have fared in the ancient world no they're not that special but but part of it is that the period itself in europe and let's make that distinction in europe it's not a complicated period of warfare right it's there's not a lot of tactical maneuverings that there's not a lot of things like drill going on right and so this is where we one of the shows we did on hardcore history addendum which is a more fun feed where we can fool around sometimes is we wanted to make the point that unlike today where military technology and capability is a one-way street, right? You wouldn't pit an army from the Second World War against an army from the First World War because it's ridiculous, right? But in history, that's not been the case. And up until about probably Napoleon's time, it was not altogether unrealistic to imagine armies from earlier periods beating armies from later periods. So we pitted the Romans of Caesar's time against the Normans at Hastings. And uh, and a lot of people who who really don't study warfare thought that that was a ridiculous comparison. But I heard from a lot of people who do study warfare that says it was a ridiculous comparison because the Normans at Hastings would not have stood a chance against Caesar's people a thousand years previously. Right. Because they had things like drill. Right. They could put. And this is a Hansdale Brook point. But he 100 years ago, he was harping on the fact that what we forget is that these more sophisticated societies from the ancient world could support more troops in the field and larger armies. So whereas a Viking army of 10,000 is a really large Viking army, a 10,000-man force in the Roman Empire is a glorified reconnaissance in force, right? They put 40,000-man armies in the field because they could feed them, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that, that the fact that you're talking about a relatively uncomplicated period in military history in Western Europe during that era opens up the door to people like the Vikings who are also fighting in an uncomplicated way to doing better than they would have done had the Vikings tried to take on, you know, had they existed in the Roman Empire's times and they had to wrestle with the defenses of the Saxon shore and the legions that they would have run into once they made landfall then I think it's a different story altogether. Well, that war correspondent I was just mentioning that I was listening to, although he was talking kind of the opposite there, at least in some uh, some circumstances. What did where, you think? Uh, well, no, that there that there is just times in history where um, the, the smaller, more unlikely forces have actually been able to prevail, and because of the 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 nature of smaller forces, you know, I think being you know sort of more nimble, not as reliant on lots of resources, you know, and, and things like that. And so that is true you know, too. He's right. Like, He's right about that too. It depends on the circumstance, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, so um, I did want to get to something a little bit. Um, off of Vikings, um, but I mean, still, I mean, history related. Um, and I can't remember if you and I kind of mentioned a little bit about this when we talked, but um, this is the idea, and, and maybe it, it, it's lumped in with, you know, why Vikings are still so popular in the modern era and stuff, but the idea of um, judging people in the past. And oh, yeah. is it is it okay to do that, to, to judge people, uh, by modern standards for things that they did in the past. So 
you know, I mean, you've covered a lot of different areas of history in your podcasts and stuff. I mean, what, I mean, what do you think about that and sort of this idea of, you know, thinking in historical context? Well, I try to imagine how we would feel, right? So, because I feel like inevitably we're going to be judged by our descendants someday. And what if we find out that something we routinely do, which is a standard part of modern life as we understand it, is seen as an unpardonable sin 500 years from now, something that literally is so terrible to our descendants that it negates any good you may have done and maybe even outweighs the fact that you didn't even know you were doing something bad when you drove that car or ate that meat or threw out that stuff or whatever it might have been, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I figure that if that's the case with us now, being judged by our descendants and feeling like that would be pretty unfair, I try to extrapolate the same sort of thing from the past. And I always imagine sort of a, I always call it the celestial court of historical justice in session. And I try to imagine, you know, a defense attorney representing, you know, the the people from the past and a prosecuting attorney representing the people now and trying to judge a Genghis Khan for what he did. Uh, and then I and then I always get stuck on a jury of their peers. I mean, does it have to be a jury made up of Alexander, Caesar, you know, those kind of guys? Or can it be, you know, people we pick up off the streets today? Um, I think it's ridiculous. And I think it's ridiculous because I don't know how you can judge people and assess blame for criteria that they don't know exists, right? Right. So, So if you didn't know that something was wrong, can you be held accountable for it? And so that's always where I I get I get stuck. Now, the the devil's in the details, though, because if you say something like you can't judge a Genghis Khan for not knowing that conquering other people and slaughtering your enemies and all that's a bad thing. When can you judge a person who does that? Right. When when does it become modern enough so you could say, well, Napoleon should have known. You know, by the, by the early 1800s, right? He should have known better by then. So I don't know when you can start to hold people accountable. I just know it seems as unfair to hold somebody to our standards today who was operating 500 years ago as it would be to judge us 500 years from now for things we don't even know are going to be considered wrong. Yeah, I, on, the, I agree. on the flip side of that argument, right, is the if you go going back to 500 years from now, if they're not judging at all, right, then who's Who's teaching Hitler and the lessons from the Nazis and the Holocaust, right? Like that. Like, That's a great point. Because it's it's on the flip side. If you're not going after those things and and putting some kind of lesson to it, then a lot of the value of studying the past goes away as well. So it's because the value of studying the past is to inform us today within our own cultural lens, right? Uh, going back to that thing. Uh, so so then where's that line though, right? Because it's is it fair to judge Napoleon? Because we know it's fair to judge Hitler, right? <laughs> and are there exceptions? And to what degree can we or can we not? That it, That is a fascinating question. Well, then you get to the mitigating factors, too. So, for example, mm-hmm. when we did our show on the Mongols, we called it Wrath of the Khans. It was prompted by me, and I've been a longtime fan. It's a weird term, fan of the Mongols. Um, but I read a, a more recent work. I won't say what it was or who the author was, but I read it. It was a book about Genghis Khan, and it made him sound like the way we feel about George Washington. I mean, it was just this wonderful portrayal. He was religiously tolerant and he founded this. And and I mean, I read it and I thought, God, he sounds like, you know, Jesus of Nazareth in this book practically. Right. And, and I remember thinking, okay, well, if you, if you 
if you take some of the old works that make him sound like, you know, a, a, a medieval version of Hitler and blend it with this book that makes him sound like George Washington cutting down the cherry tree and that mythological version, do the good qualities that this person brought to the table mitigate the things that he, I mean, it's the old line about, they used to say about the Romans that they create a wasteland and call it peace. Right. Yeah. But the, but yeah. they made it safe. You know, I used to, the, the, the virtues of empire, right. They made the trade routes safe and they, but of course they killed maybe a million Celts to do it in Western Europe. So it's this typical question of, you know, um, we benefit now from what was done then because we're not the generation that had to pay the bill for all those wonderful things, you know, right. for the benefit. Right. And so the question is, is that if we're getting to our celestial court of historical justice, do we make the jury up of, of we who who gained the benefits or do we make the jury up of the Celts who paid the price? Right. Um, so I don't know the answer to that, but I do think that when you look at something like um, uh, uh, the trade offs of empire, right, the, the traditional trade offs about whether or not somebody like uh, uh I'm trying to think about the mitigating factors that you just brought up because it's it's a fascinating point because the mitigating factors long outlive the empire. Because if you if you if you if you went to France today and you said to the people of France today, aren't you glad that the Romans killed so many of your ancestors so that you have this this history that comes after the Romans that so benefited you now? It's a fascinating thing to wonder about. When I look at 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 the at the figures like the Genghis Khans. I mean, you could do the same thing with the, with the Vikings, too. I mean, the Vikings brought a lot of interesting, good qualities as part of their long-term effects to a lot of these places. But if you went to the Monk and Lindisfarne and said, yeah, 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 I know it's bad now, but, you know, cut them a little slack because over time this is going to benefit the, the British Isles where you live, I wonder what the reaction would have been, you know? <laughs> well, people like things to be very black and white. People don't like to have it be... Um, that kind of nuanced, you know, reality happens in the gray middle kind of thoughtful and, you know, cause I actually had, you know, there was a class that I taught for many, many years up until just about a year and a half ago where I, I it was more towards the, the, the late medieval and modern Europe. And, um, you know, it was, you know, say five years ago or something when we started the, uh, you know, taking statues down and, you know, that person has a racist history and all of that kind of stuff. And so I was like, all right, it just begs the question for me. And so, all right, here's the, here's the title of the assignment is judging the past. Here are some case studies. Do we remove Woodrow Wilson's name from the library at Princeton? You know, do we take down the statue of Cecil Rhodes at Oxford University? And I mean, these were two, you know, things because it's European history and we were, you know, so I'm a little bit of American for the Americans, but you know, some of the um, you know, the periods of time and people that we had discussed in the confines of this class, you know, and it's like, it, it, is it right to do this? And it's like, it's okay to learn from it, you know, and CJ, I think maybe that's part of your point. We have to talk about it in order to learn from it. Um, but the condemning, you know, to the extent that we were sort of doing there for a while as though we know everything and 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 somehow are 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 better or would make different choices given the same circumstances that those people had. And you know, ultimately, I would argue, well, what we have the choice to do is not do the things that they did that we think are so abhorrent, but we don't really sort of have the right to sit here and, you know, Tear those people down, people who, by the way, and Dan, I've said this to you before, who aren't here to defend themselves, <laughs> you know, so it's kind of a cheap shot uh, to a certain degree. 
um, that, you know, I think that's kind of more where where we should be. But I totally agree with you that the, the humility that it takes to say, I don't want people in 500 years to be thinking these same things about me. So maybe it's not the right thing for me to do to think that about people who lived 500 years ago. You know what's missing sometimes in these discussions, too, I think. And, and I'm glad you brought up statues because I think that's what's missing. Statues last so long. Right. So so the problem with statues is that times change and you go through many different moods and attitudes towards things. But the statues are still there. What, what I think was left out of the conversation and all the statue toppling recently is how common it is to do something like that. I mean, they take down Saddam Hussein's statue. They topple uh, uh, a Lenin and Stalin statue right in the in the former Warsaw Pact nations. Statues last a long time. So my, my favorite example of this is um, I'm a fan of Sargon of Akkad, right? The the ancient, maybe the first empire builder ever in Mesopotamia. But if you look at the only and I, I'm not even sure you could say it was him, but the only artifact that might show a statue or an image of, of Sargon, um, you can see that the eye has been completely defaced and cut out by somebody, right? <laughs> it's the ancient equivalent of toppling his statue because somebody didn't like him. And eventually wherever they had this image of him got taken over by people who didn't approve of him. So his statue was toppled, so to speak. And so the, the interesting thing though is, if you get through the period of, of let's call it the backlash period, right? Because Churchill's getting it now in London, right? Because of the whole colonial thing. But if, yep. you can, if you can weather that storm, it's funny how it goes away because you could have a statue of Julius Caesar in France now and nobody's toppling him. You know, I'm going to keep going back to that million Celts thing. I think the whole, it's going to be my touchstone in this whole conversation. But I mean, nobody's going back and defacing or toppling his statue because you've gotten away from the emotions of the time. Right. People don't get hot and bothered over that anymore. But if this if this was a hundred years after he killed all those Celts and somehow the Celts got you know hold of their own culture again and kicked the Romans out, I guarantee you they're toppling Julius Caesar's statue. So part of this is that the, the desire to get those statues toppled comes when the emotions are still hot because you don't care enough after that time period. So I would suggest that the backlash period, I mean, if you're if you're in the former Soviet Union's territories and you're toppling Stalin's statues, well, that's something that matters to you now. You wait 500 years and if they haven't been toppled yet, I doubt anybody takes them down. So, I mean, I think I think that's a, a, a manifestation of some of the heat of the moment kind of thing, right? The, 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 the intense emotions we feel when we're still connected to the events that statue sort of represents. Does that make sense? Well, absolutely. And it gets to your very, very, very first podcast, your 15 Gosh. minute, you know, Alexander. Yeah. Template, Hitler. right? Yeah. I mean, we used to talk about that in this class too. It's like Alexander the Great versus Hitler. Well, what's the difference here? You know, right? right? Genocide, genocide, empire building, empire building, da 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 da. You know, it's like, well, what's what's the what's the linchpin? Well, it, it's proximity and motivation, right? 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 Why did they do it? Right, right. But but for us, right? Yay, Alexander the Great. You know, and then Hitler. Ooh, you know, I mean, and I would never say you know Hitler the Great, obviously. But it's like, what is it? It's proximity, right? Where there's still people with living memory of Hitler. The tattoos on their arm, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So it gets right to the point of what you just said, you know, I mean, so, you know, the, what is it, 2,500 years or whatever that separates us from Alexander the Great? Well, I mean, I don't think people would probably, you know, 
I'm going to guess maybe people won't be lauding Hitler in 2,500 years, but who's to say, you know, it's like, why Depends did, on how, how things break, right? Yeah. Well, and I actually had a student on this, like not the Hitler thing, but on, on uh, the, just the judging the past thing who just wrote this brilliant line that I actually like saved my phone because I thought it was so awesome where she just said, to some degree, uh, filtering history th- through today's morals is like belittle- belittling Pythagoras for not having a calculator. <laughs> right on. I think that's yeah. fair. Yeah. We're not, we're not treating his dog better. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So. Yeah, for a lack of better analogy, this has taken me to to a very different. This has nothing to do with the Vikings. I'm I'm going more Freud and Jung now. But if you think about like a person, and as we live our lives and we go through things, you know, I behave differently now than I did when I was 19. And hindsight is 2020. And if I could go back now with everything I know now. To when I was 19, yeah, I could judge my behavior from back then, right? And say, you know, that was wrong and that was this. And 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 to a certain extent, um, you know, yeah, through that judgment, self-inflict harm. And that's almost what's happening culturally is sometimes. But I like your point, Dan, when, when you talk about how when the wound is fresh, right, then you have this reactionary period. And if we can just weather that, then it's fine. I, going back to this analogy of the person, it's like we don't process trauma immediately it takes time and sometimes it just takes time to get through that emotional upheaval to then get to the other end and then you can start kind of peeling it back with a more objective look and i don't know if this is going to help our viewers you know kind of process this but it's you know and and of course you know as we go through and, and that that emotion lessens because we've we've moved past it then we can but the, at the same time you know i think i don't think it's fair to to throw away the past right it's it's you know, you you don't want it to affect you today, right? But you don't want to throw it away either because it has lessons to teach, right? And it's made, it makes us who we are today. Uh, and so sometimes I think I think that judgment is 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 almost a, a, a going back to the analogy of the person. You know, when when if I judge myself harshly from when I was younger, I'm just self-inflicting a wound. But it's usually because of that wound that I'm self-inflicting, right? I might be getting a little too far into the weeds here, but <laughs> no, no, I, you know what? It reminds me of, of, a, of a debate we always have. And it's it's a, conse- a, a contextual question, I think, because the version of you at 19 is in a completely different context than the version of you. Now, I always use the dropping of the atomic bomb or if you want to if you want to extend it out, the whole idea of strategic bombing, right? The bombing of civilians in cities from the air, because something like that seems manifestly indefensible today. And yet the context is what a lot of people who judge that harshly is missing, right? They they don't realize that the people in that era, if you went back and you tried to have a conversation based on morality with them in 1943 or 1944, they would have thought you completely crazy because you just wouldn't have understood the, the, the times in which you lived. There was a great thing. We did a show on called Logical Insanity about the about, about the whole idea of strategic bombing leading up to the atomic bombings and a lot of people don't don't put the two together but all the atomic bombing was was an extension of what was already being done because cities were being leveled with regularity without atomic weapons right it just all of a sudden you could do with one bomb what it took you fleets of bombers to do and people will turn around and go well you know how could you how could you drop a bomb like that on civilians you want to say well everybody was dropping a bomb on civilians and before the war everybody thought that was bad and then once the war started, 
Well, it's total war. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's trying to figure out how you win these wars, but they don't have any data to know. Um, there was a whole line of thinking that this was actually a more merciful way to conduct warfare if it ended the war earlier, because the real tragedy was every. I mean, I think I think there was a state. Um, a statistic, and I'm, I'm going from memory, so let's just pretend it's right, but it's something like that, that every single day in the Far East, 10,000 innocent civilians were dying. Well, that means that every day the war goes on, that's 10,000 more. So if you do something horrific that kills 100,000 people today, well, that's 10 days worth of what was already going on. But without that, I mean, and that's why it was called logical insanity, because it's it's an absolutely crazy discussion to try to talk about. Right, The weighing that you're doing there is between horrificness and complete immorality. And you can't square that circle unless you're in those time periods. And, the, and in the logical insanity show, or it might have been the um, destroyer the, of worlds. Yeah, the destroyer of worlds, it might have been. There was um, a conversation in, in one of the books where they were talking about the Manhattan Project program and how much it had cost the American government and the public. And there was a guy named Graves who was the military leader in charge of this. And they said, had they not used this weapon once it was developed, Harry Truman and this Graves person would have been hung by the American public from the nearest lamppost because the attitude would have been, you're telling me my son has to die maybe in, in the continuation of this war when you have something that we spent a fortune on that we invented that will end this war sooner. I mean, in other words, today we look at it as this monstrosity that's indefensible. If you go back to 1945, it was just as indefensible to not use it. And it's the context which completely changes the moral equation in that discussion. Um, and that's, you know, that's why when you go to the Celestial Court of Historical Justice, I keep wondering who makes up the jury. Right. You know, if you're doing the atomic bomb dropping, do we have the jury made up of today, our people, or do we put 1945 allied, you know, civilians on that jury? And and I think if you do, you get a completely different verdict. I think I that was in um, Destroyer of Worlds. I like I, I was profoundly affected by that. I was teaching that stuff at that time. And I, I mean, I can remember explicitly I was on my treadmill in my shed listening to that because what hit home to me so much is the way that you delved into Truman's head at the time. Right. To have to make that kind of decision. Because, you know, as, as people probably know, I mean, he wasn't part of the Manhattan Project. I mean, he's, he, he got given a, a very, you know, as John Stewart on The Daily Show used to say, polish that turd. I mean, he was like, you know, in the worst situation and then have to be the guy charting into that unknown territory and having to weigh those things. Um, it was just brilliant, Dan. It, it was just brilliant. Well, it's not that. <laughs> but, 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 but the context again, right? What, what yeah, a lot of people yeah. don't know. So like um, what a lot of people don't know is the fire bombings that were going on, right? And so what I always tell people who say that these atomic bombings were immoral, I say, well, you know, they were firebombing all these cities beforehand. And actually the greatest death toll in the war from bombing was the Tokyo firebombing. Right. In 1945, that was not an atomic blast, right? Uh, killed more people than either Hiroshima or Nagasaki. And after the atomic bombs were dropped, they conducted several more firebombing raids. So if you don't drop the atomic bombs, you're still going to have the firebombing, which if you're on the ground, I see no functional difference between the two. Right. So unless you're and that's why logical insanity went all the way backwards and tried to get to how a bunch of theoretically moral people 
could have devised a policy that ended up doing this, right? So you go back to the air theorists uh, of, of, of the very early, I mean, it's practically right after the Wright brothers. These guys are trying to figure out how you would use an aircraft in war. And when you read it, it sounds like these are complete humanitarians because their entire idea is you're going to do some terrible thing with this aircraft on the first day of the war and the war will be over the next day. And hence, you have saved all the lives a multi-year war would have cost. So it becomes this, this in, entire endeavor where all these people who are actually in charge of creating these bombing doctrines are themselves telling themselves when they go home at night, go to church the next day, consider themselves moral human beings. They're justifying this by saying, I'm shortening the war and thereby I'm saving lives. And so no matter how, and, and in a funny way, that means the more horrific you make it in the short term, the more noble you're actually being in the law. It's the most completely twisted, but that's what context can do to you sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I always tell my students, like- That's Jungian and Freudian too, maybe. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. But I mean, bar none with the study of history, I mean, the content is great and it's interesting. But for me, it's like students, if you learn nothing more than this one thing by the time you get finished with me, and that is historical context matters. Well, and it's the it's the real reason for, you know, so when people say, what does history matter? You get this question. I know you guys get this. It's the, it's the number one question we get. Why should people even learn history? And what I always say is because of the context. And the way I always explain it is I always say it's like your favorite TV show, right? If you join in season five, you have no idea what's going on, right? You don't know why this person's mad at this person. You don't know the history. They keep referring to this other character that's not around. And the only way to figure out what's going on currently in the series is to go back and watch the old episodes because it provides the context. And that's exactly what history does. It helps you understand the now because you go watch the earlier episodes. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Well, and as I make one, my most recent post on my Substack is like the same question, the pondering of the past, you know? It's like why do we do that? And, and and we often hear the you know don't don't make the same mistakes and all of that kind of stuff. But I mean, and there are things like that for sure. But also, um, well, and I think you even alluded to a little bit of this in your recent podcast on the long view, right? That it's like when you um, when when you look at the the way things have happened before. And I know you. I talked a bit with Dan Jones about this. The idea of you know, human beings have been through so many of these things before, you know, which, whether it's a, a pandemic or an economic crisis or or whatever, warfare, that if you look, you know, there, there might be something there, not least of which is just that maybe the second, third, fourth time is not going to be so scary because we've been through it before, right? So that at least it, maybe it, you have a chance of it not making you be so freaked out in the present uh, if you have a sense of the longer view. Um, I mean, my friends definitely know that about me, that I'm not the one to worry. And I always say it's because it's my historian brain. It's like I take the long view. And but then the end of it is just, you know, study the past because the stuff is so damn interesting. You know, I mean, we couldn't make it up if we tried. You know, it's like it's just it's just worthwhile in its own right. You know, it's the story of us. I always think it's almost there's almost a. Let's call it a, 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 a humanity self-defense mechanism to not 
learn from history, to not feel the same. So, I mean, you know, I was talking to somebody about the uh, about nuclear weapons, because, of course, you know, with the situation in Ukraine now, we've opened up the door to something that 20 years ago people had thought was, OK, we're we can breathe a sigh of relief. We're not going to face this again. And now, of course, we see Bertrand Russell was right when he talked about, you know, it, it's it's logical to imagine man walking a tightrope, you know, for 20 minutes or whatever he said, but not 200 years. Um, I, I think. I think when you look at this question of um, of something like learning from history or, or I think it requires you to feel the pain. Let, let's imagine the Holocaust, for example, and imagine how strong the pain was from the Holocaust in the 1960s, right? A mere two decades or so or 15 years after it happened. Um, if you required five generations from now to still feel that pain at that level, in addition to all the other kinds of things like that, you know, obviously not at the same scale, but in other words, if you take all of humanity's tragedies and imagine that we're going to feel them all at the same level we felt when they were new and fresh, it would be like post-traumatic, it'd be like civilizational post-PTSD at a level that would cripple us, right? So there's, it may be a, it's maybe like being able to get over a family member dying or at least be able to function after 30 or 40 years as compared to how you were the year that you lost them. If you look at it in a grand historical civilizational sense, you know, maybe not learning from history is a byproduct of getting over these past horrific things that would cripple us if we felt them all as we did when they were new. Does that make any sense? No, absolutely. Because that's exactly what I was saying earlier with the, the, what the, that war correspondent was saying. It's like the human species is hardwired to get over the trauma. If we didn't, the species wouldn't last. <laughs> it's almost Darwinian. Yeah. Yeah. End of story. Right. Yeah. So, well, I have a question. Maybe, I don't know, maybe last question we've been going on for a while here, but um, do you think Alexander the Great would have been a Viking? You know why I don't think he would have been a Viking? Because I think he already had a a, a problem with his self-esteem because the Macedonians or Macedonians, they always think I'm pronouncing it wrong when I'm making a political <laughs> choice by saying it that way. I think he he already had this because remember, his dad was Philip. And when and Philip's nickname that the Greeks gave him was the barbarian. And uh, and and the idea that these people were not cultured and that they were not fit for being called Greeks who read high cultured works and who were tutored as people forget Alexander's personal tutor was Aristotle. Um, but, and, and Philip, Philip famously at the battle of Chaeronea with the bodies everywhere after he defeated the United Greek army walks around dancing drunkily saying, supposedly Philip, the barbarian, Philip, the barbarian is a way to, to, to sort of uh, show off that, you know, here's your barbarian. I think Alexander had an inferiority complex from that. And I think he deliberately would have portrayed himself as something on a higher Aristotle type level than a barbarian Viking would have been. Although I imagine a Greek person from Athens who was a contemporary of Alexander probably would have said he's nothing more than a Viking anyway. So it depends on who you ask. He would have been one of our fancy Vikings. For sure. Definite fancy Vikings. <laughs> well, and also don't forget, you know, um, some of the more insecure people in the world have done inflicted the most damage. <laughs> so, Well, what, what's the old line about how how the, the people that are the really wise people are are plagued with inaction and indecisiveness 
because they think about all the complexities in the gray area and the nuances of the ones who get things done, historically speaking, are the ones who have none of those things burdening their core, you know, the ones who are darn sure that what they're doing is right. And, you know, so I, I think there's something to be said for this. Marcus Aurelius was was one of the few who could maybe fuse those two tendencies. <laughs> well, that's uh, on my right on the novelist side. That's how you create compelling characters is, you know, that damage, you know, very driven people. Are people who, you know, we I talk a lot about the narrative motivation for characters, right? It's the it is the thing that makes the story. It's not the the plot, fine, but what really makes the story is that narrative motivation is the basically the external desire that this person is reaching for that is then running counter to an internal need, some kind of internal wound that creates a need that they need to soothe, right? And so essentially the uh, uh, people who are very, very driven are using that drive. Workaholics, for example, always pushing forward, trying to reach that next step. That's that's essentially their version of a pacifier, right? Because they're just they think that's what's going to soothe the the internal wound. But then, what's great in in stories is we show the process of through going through the plot and through through the plot acting on on this character, then they start to realize that maybe their external desire isn't serving the internal need, right? I just watched the movie Dungeons and Dragons, which was uh, fun. Uh, it was pretty good. Uh, I actually played D&D. I'm one of those weird people. And <laughs> the, um, back when it was new. Yeah. Oh, it's, and it's, it's, uh, the movie did, did an all right job. But then at the end, when uh, the main character had to sacrifice what he wanted in order to save what he needed. And that, and I, I just looked at my wife and I was like, that's good storytelling. <laughs> I didn't get my pony on my 10th birthday. Therefore I had to conquer all of Eurasia. So yeah, yeah. there you go. Right. <laughs> right. Well, we never know what the wound is, but, and yeah. And, and unfortunately this is a sad thing is in, you know, movies, books, novels, you know, the, the whole point of it is to go through the whole process and have that, that fundamental psychic change that comes about from, you know, the hero's journey. The resolution. Uh, right. The resolution, unfortunately, uh, in real life, too few people actually achieve that level of internalization and self-development to, to get beyond those things. And, and a great example is my grandfather, who he was a business tycoon all through, you know, he started a commercial fishing empire back in the 1950s. And he, he's, you know, they closed the company in 2014. He has no purpose in life left and he never did anything to overcome that internal wound. And you can just see it on him. And he's, uh, every interaction I have with him now is very negative, <laughs> you know, and he's just, he's just a, a miserable, spiteful. And it's like, well, but look at all these accomplishments you did. And he just, and, he, and, and it's because he just never got past what was underneath. Because he never looked at it, he he thought that he thought the business conquering was going to be was going to soothe that wound. He never did, and now that it's gone, and he's old, and he can't do it anymore. That wound just sits, and he just somebody erased the graffiti that he thought he'd yeah. written into the historical record books. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, that's and that's what's going to happen to my character. <laughs> that's one of those Viking things, though, that um, that's one of the articles that my students read about uh, this idea of, um, you know, power in the Viking age. And, 
you know, and men and women, and that, that they cared less about sex and gender, but about these character attributes, like, are you strong or are you weak? Are you courageous or are you a coward? You know, and those things could be applied to both men and women. And, you know, so you're a young, virile, you know, sort of valorous, you know, courageous Viking warrior. That's great. That's kind of the highest, you know, model there that, that everybody else is gauged by. But, but then as a guy, right, as you age out of that and you just sort of get older and die of old age, they believed, uh, as this person's argument goes, that you, you know, increasingly became seen as more and more effeminate, you know, so you, you became weaker and started losing power, which inherently for them meant that he was he was sort of becoming more feminine and it was more shameful uh, to be you know, that way. So another reason to go to Valhalla in your prime, right? Right, right. Don't die old in your lounging chair. <laughs> or die with your boots on, as they used to say in the old American West, right? Yeah. Or, die, or die with your boots on. Sorry, I yeah. got that reversed. Yeah. Well, even in the, one of the the main family sagas, uh, the saga of A.L. Scott Grimson, I mean, he was a famous warrior poet, big dude in his own time, but he he got older. And then there's, you know, parts in the saga where he's he goes blind eventually. And then, like, the women of the house, horror of all horrors, the women are, like, you know, kicking him around and pushing him around and making fun of him because he's in the way and he's just old and feeble. And it's like... Yeah, I mean, they, they definitely valued youth in that culture. I wonder why that's why Americans are so attracted to Vikings. Warrior, warrior societies all over the world, right? Once you once you can't be that good of a warrior, it's like losing your commercial fishing empire, right? Yeah. What good are you? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, this has been a great conversation. I hope I I hope I contributed something to it and didn't look like a fool, guys. So what uh, are you able to say anything about like when we can expect a part two of uh, Twilight? I'm working on it right now, but that doesn't mean anything. You know, when you do these things improvisationally, I mean, I, I'm really jealous of those people that can write it all out because at least you can look at it and you can assess it. We don't ever know what we have until the end of each recording session. And then you have to say, you know, did you repeat yourself five times from what you said two weeks ago? Did it make sense? Did it sound good? Did you go off on too many tangents? So we really, not only do we not know, but we don't know what we have till the end. We don't know how long it's going to be. And truthfully, when you listen to it at the end, by that time, we've not only listened to it 2,000 times, but we've listened to all the pieces that we didn't keep and threw on the cutting room floor, but in our head, it's still all mixed together. So it's always this great adventure when we finally, as Churchill said about his book, what did he say? First, it's your mistress, then it's your master, then it like controls your whole life. And eventually the only freedom is when you fling it to the public, you know, out of out of with a lack of. And, and it's a little like that. We fling it to the public and go, God, I hope it's good. And you never know. So uh, so I have no idea if I had to guess. I said uh, latter part, maybe I'm hoping the fall. You know, keep your fingers crossed, but uh, but it's getting harder and harder to do it. And I find that I used to say that I could depend on a good 14 days a month in the studio working well. I feel like as I get older, I'm down to like seven or eight. So, I mean, so we'll see. Longer and longer is the deadlines. That's the only answer I can give. Well, then how with that process, how do you actually even know when to say, OK, that's a wrap? <laughs> Oh boy. You know what? It, it's a different, it's a different, sometimes like when we're doing the second world war type stuff, when the war's over, it's a logical ending point. Um, I'm thinking with the Viking thing, we're probably going to, going to use the 1066 as a, as a soft edge that we can use and then do maybe like 
you know, my, my, I change my mind on this all the time, but then do sort of like one of those postscripts at the end where you point out how like a faucet being turned off, but still sort of dribbling at the end that this really isn't the total end of the story, but it's a logical place to end it with the little postscript. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I guess, yeah, at least the nature of history being history, it sort of ends it for you, doesn't it? It's like the next period ensues. and you I feel just to... the opposite. See, oh, I really? feel like it just all blends into the next era seamlessly. <laughs> and that's why you have the chapters in the history books that historians have to say, this is the Viking Age, because if it's not, what is it? Right. It's just this, <laughs> it's just what came after and what came before all mixed together. So I feel yeah. like I'm going to I'm going to go with the art, artificial ending because it's there and I need it. Yeah, I don't want Twilight of the Azir to get to the end of the newbie. And then the Berlin Wall came down. I was going to say, it goes right into the old American West and go West, young man. And it's just a continuation. That's right. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, anything else we have? CJ, you? We go out with a whimper and not a bang. Yeah. I was just... I was think I was thinking about your postscript, and I was like, you know, 13th century is probably where you want to hit it because that's uh, Viking democracy, right? The which saga was it, Terry? The oh uh, no, wait, the Icelanders had Viking democracy in the 10th century. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, the, the saga about when they into Rollo yeah, and then yeah. Normandy and then Hastings yeah. and then Crusades and then oh my gosh, and once you're into the Crusades, it it, it never ends. Don't forget all, King yeah. Sigurd, the Norwegian Crusade, man. There were Vikings on Crusades. In the long ships. That's funny. That's a fascinating topic just in and of itself. Think of the, we think of the Vikings as, you know, the pagan other, you know, that came in and, and just terrorized Europe for three centuries. And then they were the first crusader state after Pope Urban II called yep. for, for the crusade. They just yep. flipped. <laughs> Although Vikings I, kept being Vikings. I was just telling a student this morning yeah. that in, in the 1230s and 40s, we have letters from the Pope admonishing the Archbishop in Norway to not use beer in the Eucharist and beer for baptizing people. <laughs> and I and I know that there were still some sacrifices going on in Sweden. You know, the blood rites were still continuing long after it was okay to do that. So there are always going to be some of the people sticking to the old ways, right? Well, there's neo-pagan movements even today. <laughs> Neil Price oh got into that in his books too, didn't he? Yep. yep. <laughs> so, you guys yep. were so kind to have me on. I appreciate it. Like I said, hopefully I didn't look too ignorant and, and, and I was able to keep up a little bit. But you guys keep doing the great work. And my goodness, like I said, I keep looking at the shields in the background there and I'm jealous. I've got some swords on my walls, but I don't have any nice shields or helmets. Well, we'll have to fix you up. Have you guys ever checked out uh, uh, Albion Swords makes wonderful, they call them, um, they're not replicas, they call them recreations. And on their very top line swords, they they pull the ones that have been taken out of graves and they they x-ray them and MRI them and do all these things. And then they've got a couple of people on staff who are like these master swordsmiths who recreate everything about them so that the, the only thing that's different is that they use modern steel as opposed to the stuff from the old days. But otherwise, the look, the feel, the performance, they're really incredible. Worth going on. And they have some wonderful Viking swords. Hey, where is this? It's called Albion Swords, A-L-B-I-O-N. Check out their line. But uh, it, I've got a couple of them on my wall. And when you actually take them out and they feel unlike anything, they're nothing like the swords you played with before. I mean, uh, the, I have one 
that you can balance on your finger because it's so perfectly balanced and weighted that it won't fall. I mean, it's it, when you and and when you feel them, like it makes it want to you want to swing it, and and you look at these things, you just go. Even when swords were not a good weapon to have anymore, you can see why people still had them because they're just there's something. I'm not a gun guy, but I am a sword guy, mm-hmm. and there's something interesting about them and beautiful about them that I just can't get my hand my mind around. But when I look at that shield behind you and that helmet, I just think, you know what's missing? You need a nice Viking sword up on that wall with them. Uh, it's, the it's exclamation the corner, the collection. It's in the corner because I use it. <laughs> well, you should use it. Yeah. They want to be I, used. I do have, I, I I could close this out with just an embarrassing story that has to do with swords. Uh, my my father has done a lot of business in Japan, and one of his clients oh. gave him a handcrafted, true, high-quality well, steel awesome. katana. Awesome. Yeah. And he, he has it displayed at his house in France, and I went and visited one time, and he showed me this gift that he got from a customer. And I kind of looked at it. And I was like, I, I, and so my dad's the, he, he is the consummate salesperson. So I didn't believe him. I thought he was full of it. I thought he maybe bought it in a gift shop and he's just pulling my leg or something. So I take this thing while he's out doing something. And I kind of look at it. I'm like, hmm, and, it, and you know, it's just like this. I'll, I'll see if it actually works. So I pull it out and I go out into the yard, and oh. I find a, a nice big limb on a tree. It was, it was this big, like eight inches. Oh I, no, I, I did. I was 19. Remember, we're we're not judging context. <laughs> oh. so, so anyway, we have the uh, a, a limb about this big. Oh. And, uh, so I took the katana out. I was like, all right, I'm just gonna. And I I expected the sword to bounce off of the limb, but it cut through that thing. I think it was birch. It just cut through it like butter, and it scared me because it went through so fast that I actually let go of the sword. Because like, oh, you know, guard. I'm in pain right now hearing this story. I just want you and to then know. It, and then it bounced and the point turned back around and stuck me in the shin. <laughs> Did it hurt the sword at all? No, the sword's <laughs> fine. <laughs> I I started bleeding. Sorry, it's the sword. <laughs> so I have a... I that, is the, I have a wait, that is the spirit of the sword punishing yeah. you for what you did. Oh, yeah. Japanese samurai. like, And so to this day, I still have a hole in my shin. Uh, and the doctor that we went to in France looked at it, and she was like, "So how did this happen?" It was a Japanese Japanese samurai sword, and she was like, "Ah, what? What? <laughs> 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 but uh, anyway, and I always like to say I like to finish that story with, and so then I demonstrated the necessity of shin guards. <laughs> <laughs> Check out those all beyond swords. See what you think. But I think yeah. the same thing. You know, they all have supposedly their own personality and. And maybe some of those wonderful Viking spirits connected to them. So, oh, the Vikings named their weapons. Yeah. Yes. yes. My favorite. All of mine have names too. Daniele Bolelli gave me one, and I, it's named Bolelli. Oh, so. that's that's creative. <laughs> My favorite Viking sword name is Kitten Ketlinger. Ketlinger. Perfect. <laughs> As I named a Viking sword in one of my books, and uh, it was so that my character was fighting the Franks, right? So they called it the Frank Cleaver. And my editor looked at that. And he goes, I think you should change it. I was like, why? He said, because it sounds like my accountant from Ohio. <laughs> Frank Cleaver. Frank Cleaver. <laughs> I'm thinking of Orchrist from the Lord of the Rings and the, the Hobbit. Yeah. Uh, well, it was a pleasure having you on, Dan. Uh, fantastic conversation. Loved it. And uh, I hope the audience thinks it's okay. They will. They will. You're brilliant. Thank you so much.
Thank Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And listen, continued success. And the Substack's a great idea, I think. And and, and I'll be watching. Thank you, guys. Yeah.